The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. A few months ago, there was a collection of people who were at a hospital. They were visiting some friends or family members, and they uh, pulled up to that hospital, parked in the visitor parking, went into the hospital, and um, they visited whoever they needed to. And this was a hospital in Italy, in Naples, Italy. They go into the hospital. This is in January. They come back out to their car in the parking lot, and their car is gone. And so you, you might think initially, like, oh, what happened? Did they, you know, maybe they're in the wrong parking lot and their car got towed. I mean, that'd be a bummer. Like, did their car get towed? No, their car did not get towed. Oh, maybe they were visiting, like, someone, friend. They're trying to do a nice thing. They come out and their car's stolen. I mean, what a bummer. You try to do a nice thing, visit someone in the hospital. You come out and your car's stolen. No, that's not what happened. Their car didn't get stolen. Well, then how was their car gone? Like, what's the scenario where a car can be sitting there one minute and then it's, it's just completely gone the next? It's because this happened. I've got a picture. Check it out. Here's what happened. They were inside visiting the hospital, and then their cars were parked there, and a sinkhole opened up unexpectedly under a couple cars, and they collapsed inside the sinkhole. That's, you can't really tell from this aerial view, but it's 66 feet deep, and um, they, were luckily, they were lucky that no one was hurt. In fact, um, they were very concerned in the hospital for a few moments, but it just knocked out power. They went to emergency power, and everyone was fine, and I'm like, man, that is crazy. Like, a sinkhole like that, like, I was thinking to myself, like, that's like a pot like when does the ground just kind of open up? And I'm thinking about um, sinkholes. It got me thinking about sinkholes and I went researching about sinkholes online and I find out they're not that uncommon for sinkholes to happen. In fact, of all of the states in the union, Florida probably has the most sinkholes. And so now you, like me, are very concerned about sinkholes, Okay. I remember um, not long ago, I, I heard a statistic, and they're trying to make you feel better about shark attacks, okay? And they said, don't worry, you're more likely to die by falling coconut than to get eaten by a shark. I don't even know if that's true, okay? But I read it, and, and I'm thinking after I heard that, I'm like, I am not less scared of sharks. I'm just also now afraid of coconuts, okay? Okay. And so now I've added another thing to be afraid of, sinkholes. Okay, when I think of danger, like, I think danger out here, you know, like sharks, like, around me, or I think of coconuts from above me, but, like, I never think, like, the ground beneath my feet. Like, I'm not, like, walking down the sidewalk, like, is this sturdy? But now, things are a little different. Okay, now the good news is sinkholes are exceptionally rare. They're very, they're extremely rare that you would die by sinkhole, okay? So, and what they say is, part of the reason is when a sinkhole is about to happen, the ground kind of starts rumbling a little bit and kind of cracking and then it starts to crumble. And so it's actually, it's not like an instantaneous thing. Usually you, you can escape and, and you'll, you'll be okay. So sinkholes, to die via, by sinkhole is not very, very rare. Now I tell you all of this, because this whole sinkhole dynamic where like usually it's water that is eroding kind of like a, a cavern underneath the ground and suddenly it buckles and it can't support what's on top anymore. That dynamic of a sinkhole, while that's rare, it's very similar to something that is not rare. 
It's actually extremely common. It's like a sinkhole. It's something that can develop in our lives. It kind of erodes things underneath the surface and can cause a collapse. And it's so common, we see it all the time. Every single one of our lives have probably encountered it like probably in the last 24 hours. It's so common that sometimes we can forget how damaging and dangerous it is. And so in our series, when we're calling Don't Wreck Your Life, what we're looking at is, look, there's all kinds of things we can't control in our life. Things happen. But there are some things we can. And for each one of us, there might be some cracking, some rumbling that we can identify in our lives to keep a collapse from happening, to keep some destruction and danger happening in our lives. And I want to show you what that is, and I want to take you to a passage that describes this dynamic. So if you have a Bible or Bible app, I want you to open to the book of Jude. Open with me to the book of Jude. Um, We're going to be looking at, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, we're going to be looking at Jude uh, verse 11. There's only one verse there. We're going to look at one chapter there, so we're going to look at verse 11. And let me just give you the context here. Jude is writing a letter to a church. And the, the people within that church, there is a group that has fallen into a very destructive pattern in their lives. And they're not only threatened to destroying their lives, but potentially the people around them. And he's warning them about it. Here's what he says, verse 11. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. They are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Now, a lot of imagery there. Let's just pause there for a second. A lot of imagery there. And and just basically how this plays out. We've been talking about this for a few weeks. Those first couple verses, it names three notorious bad guys. A guy named Cain, a guy named Balaam, and a guy named Korah. All three of these guys, their stories are told in the first five books of the Bible, sometimes called the Torah or the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those first five books of the Bible, if you could pick three of the worst bad guys out of that part of the Bible, it's probably those three. Cain, who we talked about a couple weeks ago, Balaam, we talked about last week, and Korah, who we're going to take a look at his story in a few moments this week. Those three guys are like the worst of the worst. And what Jude is saying is there's some people in your midst, they've fallen into all three of their, their issues. The, they're, they're the bad guys. When you hear those guys, they're, they're notorious. Then he goes on to list about six different natural phenomenon. And we've been talking about them, waterless clouds, uprooted trees, wandering stars, things like that, um, hidden reefs. But I want to dial in on one of them. We've talked about those throughout the series. But one of them, he says, is he says, they're shepherds feeding themselves. Now, I want you to think about the role of a, of a shepherd. A shepherd has been entrusted a flock of sheep. They're actually probably not his sheep, but he's in charge. He's responsible to make sure sheep have a place to eat, take them to pastures. He's responsible to make sure they have water. 
He's responsible to protect them from pet predators like wolves or whatever it may be. He's responsible to protect them. And there's a lot in the Bible that uses this imagery of shepherds and, and sheep. You've probably heard like the great 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, or Jesus is referred to as the great shepherd. He's the shepherd and we're the sheep, which kind of is like, oh, that's nice. We're like these cuddly, fluffy sheep. But if you know about farm animals, you know that sheep are like the dumbest of all the farm animals. So when you read that, you're like, hey, wait a minute, God. I don't know. What, what are you saying? I mean, what are you trying to say? It's probably an apt description of us. Okay, so let's just, we'll, we'll own it. Okay, we're the sheep. He's the shepherd. And a lot of times, another thing the Bible talks about shepherds is it uses that metaphor, especially in the prophets of the Old Testament, to talk about uh, bad leaders. They call them bad shepherds. And it calls them out. And so when it says um, shepherds that are feeding themselves, there's a couple things he's saying. For starters, he's saying, look, you're responsible to feed this flock, but you're too busy feeding yourself to feed the flock. That's part of what happens. But with a backdrop of the Old Testament and what the prophets say about bad leaders and bad shepherds, especially in places like Zechariah and Ezekiel, it's not just that they're feeding themselves and neglecting the flock. It's not that they're eating and the sheep are not. When it says they're feeding themselves, it's saying they're feeding on the sheep. They're eating the sheep. They're supposed to be tending the flock and caring for this, this uh, group of sheep, but instead they're walking out like, mmm, I love me some lamb. And instead of caring for the, the flock, they're eating them. That, what could that mean? Like, in other words, they're using their leadership and their influence, and instead of caring for those people, they're using them and destroying them for their own sake. Okay, well, what are they doing? This is a lot of metaphors, you know, shepherds and old guys from the Old Testament. Like, what are they literally actually doing? Like, what's the problem? Well, he just lays it out. I want you to jump down to verse 16. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Ouch. He just calls them out on what's happening. Now, we've talked about several of these through these series. I want to zero in today on the first part, that they're grumblers and malcontents. What does he mean by grumblers? It's another word in the Bible is used as sometimes murmurers. Um, in other words, or murmuring. What, what's happening? In, in other words, inside their hearts, there is a discontentment. They're malcontent. There's something they don't like. There's something that doesn't fit their preferences. There's something that's not the way they would do it. There's something that is not what's best for them or their group or their tribe or their, their family. There's something that doesn't fit their preferences. They're discontent, but then that discontentment flows outward. It becomes grumbling. It becomes talking. It becomes sideways talking. It's talking to this person over here. Hey, did you hear what they're doing over there? Man, I think that's a terrible idea. Hey, did you hear what these people are doing? Did you hear what's happening over here? It's this discontentment that's now flowing outward and becoming complaining. Now you say, okay, I mean, why is complaining? Everyone complains a little bit. 
When everyone has something, I mean, complaining's not that bad. In fact, complaining helps me. You know, I just need to vent. I'm upset about something. I just need to get it off my chest, you know. And sometimes a listening ear, it just helps me. So, like, if I'm frustrated with something, you know, I, I complain to someone, I vent out, I grumble to someone, it just kind of gets it off my chest, and I can, I can do a little better at that point. Like, what's the big deal about grumbling and complaining? Well, to understand why that's a big enough deal for Jude to write about it and to describe these people as shepherds that are eating the sheep or hidden reefs or wandering stars or clouds that never deliver or uprooted trees. Like what's the big deal about grumbling and complaining? Well, to understand that you've got to see the story of Korah. Let me share with you the story of Korah from the Old Testament. If you've got your Bible, I want you to flip back to Numbers chapter 16. Let me just read you this story about what happens. Now, to get you up to speed, this is after Moses has already had the burning bush appear before him. God's already spoken to him out of the burning bush, sent him to Egypt. He goes and stands before Pharaoh, let my people go, the whole thing. Pharaoh says no. Then God works these 10 plagues through Moses. Pharaoh finally says, get out of here. The people leave out of their slavery in Egypt. Then they're going out. They're, they get caught with their backs against the wall at the Red Sea. Pharaoh changed his mind. He's chasing them down. Moses extends his staff and his arms over the Red Sea. That Red Sea parts. People of Israel go through without, without harm. Pharaoh comes in and his army gets swallowed up by the ocean. Um, this is after that. This is after they've experienced the manna. They've, all, they've gone to Sinai. Moses went up on Mount Sinai, received the law and the presence of God, the Ten Commandments, the whole thing. This is after that. They're wandering around in the wilderness still. They haven't gotten to the promised land. They're starting to get restless. They're starting to get impatient. This is terrible. We don't like this living in the desert. When are we going to finally get to this promised land? But God's pulled this one people out to bless the entire world with. And so he's teaching them what it, who he is and what it means to be his people through this journey through the desert. In the midst of that, this is what happens. Let's pick it up in chapter 16, verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of uh, Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the sons of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. And he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Uh, do this. Take censers, Korah and all his company. Put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the holy one. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. Okay, what's happening here? One day... A guy named Korah, who, by the way, comes from the same tribe as Moses and Aaron. He shows up with uh, some of his buddies, but they're not alone. 250 of the chiefs of the people of Israel, men of influence that they've chosen particularly, they've got them all rallied up, and they appear before Moses and Aaron. And here's what they say. Who do you think you are, Moses? Who do you think you are? You think that you can go around le leading us like this? Who do you think you are? Everyone, anyone can lead Moses. 
doesn't have to be you guys. I mean, who do, who do you think you are that Aaron is the only one that can, that can bring incense before the Lord? We can all bring incense before the Lord. Like, who, who made you leader? Let, let us all lead. Why do you have to lead? And so what did Moses say? He says, oh, okay, Korah. Who, who do I think I am? Well, here's who I am. Before all this, I was 40 years tending sheep in the wilderness and uh, a burning bush spoke to me, a a bush that was on fire and wasn't consumed and I was in the very presence of God. God's voice spoke and he called me to the bush and he said, take off your shoes, you're you're on holy ground and then he called me to go to Pharaoh and free his people. I don't know, Korah, have you ever seen a burning bush? Has has God spoken to you out of of a burning bush? Because that's what happened to me. I stand before Pharaoh, and then um, I throw down my staff. It becomes a serpent. His magicians throw down their staffs. They become serpents. But my staff, my serpent, consumes theirs. It eats them, and then I pick it back up, and it turns up into a staff. Have you ever done that, Cora? Like, I don't know if you've had that life experience before. Who am I? I stood before Pharaoh, and God worked ten plagues. Just out of curiosity, Cora, how many plagues have you worked? Like, how many plagues has God done through you? Because for me, there was hail and boils, and there were grasshoppers and locusts, and the the sky went dark. Have you ever had the sky go dark because God worked through you? That's what he did through me. Uh, When we were, I don't know if you remember when we had our backs against the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army was coming to kill us. Um, While you were freaked out, I stretched my hand over the Red Sea, and the sea rolled back into these walls of water, and we walked through on dry ground. And then when the mightiest army on earth goes after us in there, the ocean closes back over it and destroys them all. That's what he did when I raised my staff. Have you done that, Christ? I just wasn't sure. Oh, no, no. I remember you, Cora. You were down at the foot of Mount Sinai when I was getting the Ten Commandments and the law, and the, and the ground was shaking, and the presence of God was on the mountain, when no one else could come on Mount Sinai, or they'd be struck dead and I was up receiving that law and you were at the foot of the mountain that's right with the congregation that was bowing down before a golden calf that's where you were so you want to know who I am that's who I am who do you think you are Cora no that's not what he said (laughs) kind of wish it was he fell on his face That's significant. Because it doesn't matter who he is. He says, here's what I I want you to do. He says, "Um, okay, all that matters is who's God's picked. So let's all, why don't you all take bowls, a censer, fill it with incense, light it on fire. Aaron will do the same. We'll do this tomorrow and we'll see who God picks because that's all that matters. Here's actually what he says in Verse 11, therefore, if it is against, therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? Do you see this? This is so important. He's essentially saying, you know what? First of all, you're right. Aaron and I were nothing. We're nothing. But if God selected us, then you're not opposing us. You're opposing God. 
And so they, they did this test. And sure enough, the next day, they set up all the censers of, of bowls. They, they filled them all with incense. They lit them uh, on fire. And um, that, that's what their plan was. And when Korah and his, uh, his posse arrived the next day, they, it says they had brought the entire congregation of Israel. That's hundreds of thousands of people. Now the entire congregation are there coming against Moses and Aaron. And uh, Moses and Aaron go into the presence of the Lord. They go into the tabernacle and they're like, Lord, um, you know, w- what are we going to do? And God says to them, stand back, get away from the congregation because I'm going to strike down the entire congregation. So you, Aaron and Moses, get away because I'm going to wipe them all out. And they beg the Lord, please, and this is what they said. This is important. They say, please do not punish and destroy all of them for one man's sin. It's always called Korah's rebellion because there is something in his heart that he then spread to the other people. It was always Korah's rebellion. And they said, don't let one man's sin draw everyone else into destruction. And so God said, basically relented, okay, I won't destroy all of them, but tell everyone to get away from Korah and, and his, his group. And he means like literally, physically, go, don't stand near them. And uh, here's how this played out. Let's just finish up the story. Verse 28, number 16. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But... If the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallowed them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into Sheol, that's that's death, they go down into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the who? The Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking, All these words, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. Whoa. You mean like a a sinkhole? Oh, that's why you brought up sinkhole in the beginning because this is really like kind of like a a metaphoric sinkhole. It's not like literally a sinkhole swallowed them up. They fell into a trap and it was like a sinkhole in their life. No, no. This is a literal, actual sinkhole. The ground opened up and they fell in and died. Say, okay, so there was, God must have known there was a sinkhole about to happen in this region of the desert. And, you know, maybe he kind of influenced their tents over that direction and he just timed it really well. No, no, no. This is a pure miraculous event. If you kept reading, it says the ground opened up, swallowed them up, and then closed back on top of them. Talk about a dramatic picture of something unbelievable that no one had ever seen before or since. The Bible's not saying like, yeah, this happens all the time. It's saying this was a crazy, unbelievable miracle God did to demonstrate something to his people so that they would learn this lesson and it would stick with them through the generations. And so they wrote it down and we have it today. What happened with Korah? I mean, what was so bad that the ground swallowed him up? Well, he was grumbling and complaining against Moses and Aaron. And if God had appointed Moses and Aaron, 
then they're really grumbling and complaining against God. And that's really destructive. So, I mean, I, I get that with Moses. I mean, Moses, I mean, if you talk about like an elite, like, I mean, this guy's certainly called by God. You're, there's a few guys up there. It's like Moses, don't complain about Moses. He had a burning bush thing. Clearly David with the whole giant that he, that he killed. Okay, David, you know, Jesus definitely, okay, for sure from God. You've got guys like Peter and Paul, like the, those guys, like you, you don't, there's a couple key leaders so clearly from God, like you, you don't complain against them. But man, with us, I mean, we have like, normal everyday leaders that we deal with, okay? Like, like we've got bosses, you know, and we've got like homeowners associations that are wicked and crooked, okay? Like we've got like normal leaders that we have to deal with. Like, I mean, I, it's one thing if it's like Moses, like I don't want to complain about Moses, but the people that we deal with, that's like a different level, right? Well, here's what the Bible says in Romans. Romans um, chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. Okay, well, I mean, but Paul clearly, who wrote that letter uh, to the Romans, I mean, clearly he had a different situation going on. I mean, he doesn't have what we have. He wasn't dealing with what we were doing. That's got to be a completely different situation, you know. I can't be the same. You're right. It's not the same. Completely different. When he wrote this, the ruler of the known world was Emperor Nero, who lived in Rome. And Paul's writing to the Roman Christians. And Nero was known to take Christians out of Rome. So like this people right here that he's, Paul's writing to, like the Roman Christians, the ones who are going to originally read this letter, Nero was known to take these Christians out of their churches, put them in his garden, and light them on fire as human torches. So it's a different situation that Paul was dealing with. What is this saying? It's saying, ultimately, what's happening with, with Moses and Aaron of God appointing leadership, it's saying that God is behind orchestrating leaders and people in authority. You say, but how can Paul say that when you've got someone wicked like Nero? Like, how do you reconcile that with one of the worst rulers in history with Emperor Nero. Look, honestly, I don't know how to reconcile how God allows something like that. But here's what I'm grateful for. That it's telling me that no matter who's in leadership, God is still in control. It tells me that no matter who's in leadership, I know who's on the throne. And my thoughts are not his thoughts. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. I don't understand all of his ways and how he turns things about, around for good. I can't reconcile things that he, he allows. And I, I don't understand. There's a lot I don't understand in there. But here's what I find rest in. That no matter who has leadership or influence or control or who's in what position, God is still in control. And that gives me rest. 
And that truth and that knowledge then influences how I live and how I act. So then let, let's start with, let, let's walk this through our lives, okay, from, from broad to, to small, from, from the big leadership positions to the small leadership positions. Let's start with the big leadership positions. If you are someone who tracks um, current events that's part of your life or you follow politics, then no matter what perspective you have, what background you have, and whether you're Democrat, Republican, Independent, Libertarian, or something else, at some point in your life, you've come across an elected official that you are unhappy with. And so you have a question that you then have to ask yourself. At that point, do I operate out of fear, out of anxiety, out of anger, out of hate? Or do I rest in who is still in control in those moments? Do I grumble and complain? Do I, do I use disrespectful, dis, uh, dishonoring kind of language? I mean, think about social media. Like, probably 50% of what is on social media is some kind of grumbling and complaining about a leader somewhere. But Christians, we're as common as that is. That's like so common. That's everywhere. That doesn't mean it's not sinful. And that doesn't mean that it's not destructive. Let's narrow the focus a little bit. What about the person that you leaders at your workspace? Maybe it's the uh, it's corporate or it's the C-level people or it's whoever it is in the in the teacher's lounge that's being talked about, that are making bad decisions, or whoever's around the water cooler, the discussions about whatever leader that may be. You may not, you're not in that position at this moment, and maybe God will one day have you in that position, but in the meantime, be faithful with the small things. Be faithful in how you speak and how you, how you share, because for some reason or another, God, we know, we trust, has all things in control. And you're not in that position right now. And here's the caution. You may one day be in that leadership position. And so if you're contributing to a culture of grumbling and discontentment, then one day when you're in that leadership position, that's what you'll sow. So be a part of making a culture that honors leaders. But now time out, wait a minute, <laughs> okay. But we're called to be forces of justice and righteousness. I mean, what do we do when there's a leader, whether in a city or in a government or when there's a leader that's at a workplace? I mean, what do I do when I see injustice? We're supposed to stand against uh, justice, uh, injustice and unrighteousness, absolutely. But we do it in a way that's productive, a way that's helpful. We, when we speak the truth, we speak the truth in love. When we do that, we, we operate out of grace. What we do is we, we, um, we go through the right chains of command. We don't do like Korah did, and he spread it to all the influential people, get an army around me, and then I come in like I'm throwing a coup. No, I, I'll start by talking to the person that I report to. I'll, I'll handle it through an appropriate chain of command. No, I do it in a godly way. I do it with grace because I've been given grace. I don't do it with self-righteousness as if they're the only ones that's sinning. I sin too. I need grace. I'm going to extend grace. I do it with, with uh, love and joy and peace. 
and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. I do it as something not like the world would do it, as someone who's been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So whatever, whether it's big or small, whether it's that, that uh, condo association that you live at or that, that group that runs your apartment or is, runs the a homeowners association, down to these small little groups of leadership, practice faithfulness in the small things and trust the Lord. Because grumbling, it's a sinkhole. It's a growing erosion of contentment in your heart. And it's really discontentment against God. And all of a sudden, the weight buckles, and it's going to cause destruction in your life. It's a sinkhole. But let me just bring this. We've talked about various contexts, work and other contexts. But you know the context this is specifically talking about? And I'm not being faithful to this text unless I bring it to this, the first main context. This is a church. This is a group that's grumbling in their church. And I, I, I'll be honest and transparent with you. This is grumbling is not something that we've struggled with as a church for 10 plus years. I thank God for that. God has blessed our church with incredible unity. And I, I'm so grateful for that. Praise God. For us to stay on the course that he's placed us in at right now, that we can celebrate with health and unity to stay on this course, let's talk about how to not let that seep into our culture. But also, let me say that because many of you are here and you've, this is the first church you've ever walked into and we're so glad that you're here. We love that. But some of you are here and have come from other churches at some point. And a lot of times, and over the years, many people have come from other churches. And a lot of times if they've come from another church, there was hurt or pain, and they're coming for a place of refuge. And a lot of times, that pain was due to something that happened in that space as a church that created a lot of grumbling. And here's how this plays out. It's the same cycle. There's something in the church that doesn't align. If I'm the grumbler, there's something in the church that doesn't align with what I would prefer doesn't align with what I like, doesn't align with what's best for me, doesn't align with what I want to do, what I want to be a part of, something that doesn't fit what I want. I'm discontent. And then all of a sudden that kind of seeps out and I start talking to this person over here or talking to this person or putting it under like a, a veiled um, prayer request. Hey, we need to pray for this ministry leader. Did you hear that they, they don't do this anymore? You know, or this guy, he canceled this. He's not even listening to God anymore or, or this and that. And we have these, com these side conversations and what are, what are we doing? We're spreading bitterness around. We're like Hebrews says, it's like casting seeds. If I'm talking around, I'm casting seeds of bitterness that takes root in hearts and that grumbling, that side conversation of complaining, rather than being productive and going to the right leader, keeping it to myself and going to the right leader who can be an agent of change, I spread it around and I grumble around. When that happens, it's devastating. And it affects, it was a sin of Korah that affected so many others around them and brought them down with him. Why is that so devastating, especially among any context, the people of God? Because the people of God are called to be a blessing to the world. They're called to be an agent of change, to bring the single message of hope and salvation to their city. 
They're called to follow in the footsteps of Christ, sacrifice themselves, take up their cross, follow after Jesus, lay aside their own interests to serve the hurting and needy and lost. Eternity is at stake for the work of what God wants to do through his church. And when grumbling happens, it pulls an e-brake on the forward movement of a local church. And now the conversation has to go inward rather than outward and talking about how to reach those who need Jesus the most. So Christian, let me ask. Maybe if, if there's been grumbling in your past, if you've been hurt by it, maybe that helps you understand why that's so painful and so hurtful, but maybe if that's something you've been a part of, it's going to be reminded to turn from. You don't have to agree with your leaders. You might even, in an appropriate way, oppose but we're called, all the leaders that God's put in place, to honor and to show love and grace and kindness, to pray for them. I heard a pastor say, uh, just this week, I heard talk, say that all behavior and conduct flows out of identity. We act based on who we think we are, and grumbling is no different. Grumbling and complaining is the difference between whether I see my identity as a son or daughter of God or whether I have a spirit of an orphan. And when I say orphan, I mean like Charles Dickens, like on the street kind of orphan, like clawing and grabbing and grasping just to survive. See, that's what happens if we view ourselves like I've got to watch out for myself Then everything that comes by that I don't agree with, I'm, I'm opposed and I'm worried and I'm fearful and I've got to hold on to this and I, I can't believe what's happening at work. Are they trying to take this away from me? And I get grabby and I, I try and position and maneuver and I, I talk bad about this person because I'm trying to protect myself over here and I talk bad about this person because I, I want to make sure that all these people are on my side and so I'm grumbling and complaining and grasping and worried and fearful and, and not knowing where I'm going to be provided and how I'm going to protect myself. That is an orphan spirit. But if you know that you've been adopted into the family of God and God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, says you are my child, then here's what that means. Your father who wields all the power in the universe is acting on your behalf and everything in your life will work together for good. So what have you to fear? When you have a heart of a, as a son and daughter. Is that something we can celebrate, Christians? When you know who you are as a son and daughter of Almighty God. Here's what that means. Your life is no longer at the mercy of the human leaders in your life. Your life is no longer at the mercy of the human leaders in your life. God is taking ownership over your life. He's ordained every step. What have you to fear? What have you to fear? What have you to do to re try to regain control? You have none. It's all in his hands. That's right where it needs to be. Find rest and live out that truth following with the love and the grace of your Savior. I want to close by reading this scripture over you. Can you just receive this? Would you just bow your head and just 
Just receive this. Can I read this over you? Just receive it out of Philippians chapter 2. Here's what we're told to do. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Who's your Lord? He's the exact opposite of Korah. Korah the grumbler. By his sin, he brought one sin, one man in his sin brought many into destruction. But Jesus, one man in his sinlessness, he allowed himself to be destroyed and in so doing saved all of us who are grumbling against God. That's who your Savior is. And as you follow after him, may our lives reflect the grace and humility of our Savior. Christian, can you take a, a moment before the Lord and just ask him, maybe there's something in your life that you need to confess? Confess before the Lord. Lord, I've grumbled. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to live at peace. I'll stand, take a stand when you want me to take a stand, but I'll do it in a way that reflects the love and grace and humility of my Savior. I don't want to grumble. Confess that to the Lord. Change course. But some of you here, today's the day of your adoption. Your adoption came at a price, the blood that Jesus shed. Jesus died so you could be adopted into the family. The true Son of God gave his life, died on the cross, and rose again from the dead so you could be adopted as part of his family. Maybe you take a step and be adopted into the family of faith today. It's very simple. You just accept what he did for you. If you want to take that step, let me lead you in a prayer. Just right there, whether you're watching online or you're sitting here, let me just lead you in this prayer. Just make these words yours to God. Say, Jesus, thank you for saving me. I believe you died on the cross to pay for my sins. It brought forgiveness from God into my life. And I believe that you rose again from the dead. And now I'll follow after you. I know that I too will rise in heaven one day. In Jesus' name, amen. If that was your prayer just then, if you put your faith in Jesus, if you were adopted and became a child of God, then I just want to ask you to do one thing. Just grab your cell phone 
and just go to the website cityrev.org slash faith. Just go on the, the browser on your cell phone. Go to cityrev.org slash faith. It's going to ask you a couple questions. Here's the reason I'm asking you to do that. I want to send you a Bible. We're going to send you a Bible so you can continue on this journey of following Jesus. We're now your brothers and sisters, and we want to walk along with you on this journey. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.